Hey everybody, Kevin Cole here, Unexpected Points, Friday evening podcast, a little bit later than I went last week, I went at 5 o'clock, could not do so this week, had a kids Christmas concert at their school to attend, Uh, lovely performance, if a bit off key <laughs> as part of the uh the choral arrangements and the uh instrumental orchestra but hey you know they're kids so it's cute uh no matter how you do it um what we're gonna do here is do a little wrap up of the week there's not a whole lot to go over here i want to talk about mike leach though i have a video to share on mike leach some stories of his get into some of his philosophy i'm also going to introduce the uh, the Unexpected Points Book Club. I'm going to start this here because mostly because I want to read something and uh, I need an excuse to do so. And I want to reread this book. So, and I figured, hey, if I'm going to reread this book, why not talk about it here on the on the podcast, on the old podcast? Uh, you know, make some content out of it, for God's sake. Um, also, uh, you know, imbibing in a little bit of uh, something right here. Not uh, the same beer as last week. This is the Other Half Brewery who... This is really just excellent, excellent, excellent brewery here. Other half, um, I don't know where you can get it exactly. I know that they have a brewery in um, Brooklyn, Virginia, D.C., other things. This is their Space Diamonds Double Dry Hopped Imperial India Pale Ale, Hazy Pale, Hazy IPA, delicious. I'm glad that I'm back to this as opposed to the beer I had last week was okay, but you know, not, not nearly as good as this one. Okay, so I was also talking about some of the content from these from the Substack, which is if you're not on board on the Substack, you need to get on board. We're taking off to uh, to new heights right now, uh, and then also Q and A. So if anyone's tuning in here, they want to you know toss a question my way, I will be ready to answer it here. Although the timing again is not great right now. So we might not have a lot of Q and A since I'm going a bit late here. People probably actually have lives on a Friday evening, aren't sitting around waiting to ask football analytics questions. So again, might not be the biggest portion of the, of the uh, broadcast, but if you're in, if you want to jump in them comments and, and leave a Q and A here, we, we got a decent bit of it last week. If you want to go ahead and do that, Hey, I'm here. I'm here to answer those. Just entitle them Q&A in case something starts going on when people are talking in, in the comment section on the YouTube Live and I won't be able to, to hear it. All right. Let's talk Mike Leach. So as I assume most people know, Mike Leach passed away unexpectedly of a heart failure, heart attack uh, situation. And it went from nothing, basically. People said that they saw him hanging out at the you know SEC West media gatherings and other things one day and the next day he was in the hospital and um and passed away so leech is just really like a fundamental character i mean he's a character above all else right anyone who's followed around leech who has seen the quotes has seen the videos being shared out there i shared some of those myself leech above all else is a character he is someone who speaks his mind, which could get him in trouble sometimes. 
but can also get some refreshing bits of honesty that probably wouldn't play on the NFL level with the amount of scrutiny and national attention and the microscope that everything is over. But, you know, a lot of people probably thought that he wouldn't play outside of a, you know, Iowa Wesleyan where he first started off or Valdoza State, right, <laughs> where, where he first started off as the offensive coordinator there for Hal Mummy, uh, eventually going on to Kentucky. And then it was like, okay, yeah, this works in Kentucky, but it's not going to work. When you get into a bigger school, you can't be the head coach someplace. And then he's the head coach, of course, um, at Texas Tech. And it's like, okay, well, maybe that can work in the Big 12 for a smaller school in the Big 12 at Texas Tech, but it can't work, you know, anyplace else if you keep on moving on. And then he goes on to Washington State and into the Pac-12. And then it's like, okay, well, it can work in the Pac-12, this sort of attitude, this sort of game plan, this, you know, gimmicky sort of stuff, but it can't work in the SEC, you know, the 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 pinnacle of college football. And then, hey, you know, I'm going to come over to Mississippi State. And while they were four and seven the first year that he was there, seven and six, and then eight and four last year, uh, tied for third in the most difficult conference in college football, the SEC West. So he's someone who disproved a lot of people throughout his entire career and did it in a very unique sort of way. And that's why I'm just going to introduce it right now as part of the Unexpected Points podcast. I'm going to go book club here. I'm going to Andrew Luck style book club here because I'm going to reread this book. Whether you guys are interested to do so or not, it's up to you. But I'm going to reread The Perfect Pass by S.C. Gwynn. I assume it's pronounced Gwynn because I really can't see any other way to, to get through it here. And it is a story about... You know, it's kind of, I'll read you some of the back cover for whatever that's worth. Uh, but it talks, it's about how mummy above anything else. It's about the air raid offense. Um, it's about how in a money ball-ish sort of way, it's for not looking as deep into the statistical angle, but more looking to the angle of how can we focus so much on execution, so much on doing something different, so much on what can maximize talent, a lower level of talent. And how can we do that in a way that will put us in an advantageous situation when naturally people like Hal Mummy or Mike Leach or others, when they're moving up from one level to another, they're they're starting off on, you know, it's only that the teams that need a huge turnaround, they're going to give them, the, give them a chance. You know, it's not going to be Texas in the Big 12 or formerly in the, in the Big 12 with all the shakeup now. I don't, you don't even know what's happening in college football anymore. But it's not going to be Texas in the Big 12 that's going to say, hey, come come over here, gimmicky air raid head coach, and come work with us. It's not going to be USC, although now uh, Lincoln Riley is there, who's a disciple-ish of and bringing that sort of air raid philosophy of um, – of Mike Leach now to USC. It's not going to be Alabama, although Alabama is now modernized and brought forth an offensive type of game plan that's similar, more similar to that. Uh, it's going to be the schools that need to get by without having the bruisers and just the upfront talent on both ends of the ball to be able to run and control the run in a way with that talent maximization. It's going to be teams that can want to pass the ball, take advantage of open spaces, things that while talent can close and make narrow, 
you can still execute your way to getting there. So it's kind of the history of the forward pass in this thing. It explores uh, how mummy's role in changing this run dominated sport. And let's think about it. You know, Texas football is now basically all air raid where it was all running before in the past. So many different programs, especially coming out of what they did in Kentucky, uh, got changed around by what he had here. And even the first chapter of this book, The Perfect Pass, which, again, we're going to do for the Unexpected Points uh, book club here. The first chapter, The Mad Pirate's Revenge. Mike Leash loved him some pirates, and it's talking about there. So it goes through everything on here. There's a lot to learn, not only about the game, about the evolution of the game, about an analytical way of thinking that doesn't involve numbers, which I think is important. As Quasi Adolfa Mensa mentioned, it's about being thoughtful and intentional and exploiting advantage, not necessarily, you know, building a model. All of that is involved in this book here. And I'm going to play a clip here that I heard that not only does it typify Leach and his attitude and his, you know, bringing out the character of who he was, but I also think it has a lot of lessons for how you approach the game and how you approach a lot of endeavors in life. And this is a story being retold by Luke Falk, who was a uh, quarterback of his when he was at Washington State for the old for the old Cougars in Washington State, discussing what happened at halftime for a game that they were losing by a lot to um, OSU. And in this case, I mean OSU, not Ohio State, but Oregon State. And what happened at halftime with uh, Mike Leach, a, a fantastic Mike Leach story here. We were playing Oregon State in 2016. We were just getting our ass kicked. It was 24 to 7 at halftime. And uh, I come into halftime, I think he's going to have like, one, I think I'm going to get an earful. And I think the whole team's going to get an earful. And that uh, he's going to switch things up. I go in the coach's office or the coach's locker room. And he's, uh, he's on Rosetta Stone practicing Spanish. <laughs> and uh, I just started laughing. And then he's like, there's nothing these guys are doing. <clears throat> we just got to go out there, play calm, and kick their mother effing ass. And then he goes back to practice Spanish. Like, no, habla. that's all he said. That was, all, that was it at halftime. He brought the team up, said, hey, let's go. Yeah, yeah, and we, we ended up coming back that game. But how many coaches are practicing Spanish at halftime? He's, he's the only. Just, yeah, he's the only one. I, I don't think there's the anyone one. else. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean that's so. If you heard, just repeat the story here. They're losing at halftime. They go in. They're like, "Where's the rousing speech? Where are the adjustments? The halftime adjustments? Where's everything else?" No. What's Mike Leach doing? You know. He's in. Uh, he's practicing Spanish in the back here. In some ways, I would say a lot of coaches probably need things to distract them from themselves and wanting to fix too much. I think we talk about this a lot when it comes to sample size and uh, maybe fourth down decisions where you say, hey, my team is not blocking well these last couple of drives. Maybe the last couple of times we tried to run on third and short or in a short yardage situation it didn't work so that's really going to affect how i'm looking at the next situation and we need to re-strategize everything no it's it's you know it's some of it is a roll of the die some of it is a flip of the coin to a degree a lot of things 
and being able to identify the things that are truly predictive, truly important, can be more and more difficult than what people think. Randomness is very difficult to identify. So you're down in this game that they're talking about here, uh, 20 to 6 or whatever you said the score was at halftime. And rather than make a whole bunch of adjustments, if you don't see a truly definitive path for why those adjustments are going to work, okay? If they're playing the defense you thought they were going to play, they're playing the type of offense you thought they were going to play, they didn't throw a complete curveball out there to what you were not even expecting coming into this, all those things are happening, then you've crafted the best game plan going into it. Continue with it. That's going to give you the best chance. You don't need to have a huge reorg of everything and rethinking of everything. Sometimes you have to just get out of your own way. If you spent a week preparing for a certain team in a certain way, they're playing that way. It's not working so far. It doesn't mean that you can extend it out into infinity and it will continue not to work forever. It just means that it hasn't worked so far. It just means a couple flips of the coin haven't gone your way. It just means a couple roll of the dice or the die have not gone your way. And I think this story typifies that from Leach, from what they were trying to do here, from exploiting the other side. And another thing that's really interesting about this, and this goes into some of my thinking when it even comes to the the World Cup. I know people hate it when football people, American football people talk about the good old continental, you know, football. But like some takes going through, there's some ideas that you have there, some new ideas that you have on there. Sometimes you have to come in with a fresh eyes and think, how can we shake things up a bit here? And some people are saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, experts are the worst at being able to predict what's the best or not. It's been tested out over and over again. It's been tested specifically in the Super Forecaster book about people who are good at forecasting are good at forecasting along a range of subjects. Often coming in from outside, bringing new perspective on subjects can make the best forecast, the best strategies there, rather than people who are so tied into tradition, number one, and are so tied into their specific, you know, knowledge about this little tiny aspect of the game more than everyone else. And then they focus too much on that as opposed to larger base rates and things of that nature. So that's another thing that you learn from, from Leach that could, that could come through here. And the last thing. I think I'll say here is that adding more flow to the game of football, allowing the players to control a little bit more. It's never going to be basketball. It's never going to be soccer. It's never going to be hockey where there are some set plays, some set pieces as they call them in soccer. Um, But you know, in football, everything's a set piece. Everything's a set play. Everything's an execution, but sometimes coaches they think they're so highly controlled, and this goes into the, the love of running the ball and other things like that. If you can control it enough, if you can get them to execute it enough, if you can get them to play exactly how you want them to play, the thought is you will win, and you can control all these different aspects. And it just doesn't work that way. And that's why in this system, the system, the air raid system that Mummy had, that uh, Mike Leach had, going to turn it over a little bit more to the quarterback. Let's adjust based upon the looks that we see on defense. Let's always, you know, have a pass play called with a run play check that we can go into. 
depending upon what we see. Let's use those overall base rate type strategic advantages of things like box numbers rather than saying, we don't care what your box number is. We're just going to out scheme you to get there when everyone's trying to do that. Let's take the easy wins and move forward in that manner. And that's a lot of what um, Leach and Mummy did. So for the perfect pass here, as part of the Unexpected Points Book Club, if, you, if you're if you not subscribed to Substack, please go over, subscribe to my Substack. Get a lot of shout-outs on this. I got a shout-out from Mike Lopez, friend of the show, uh, from the NFL head office there. Um, I think what I'll do is in the chat function there, which, eh, yeah, I don't know how it works, if it's that great or not. Either in the chat function or I'll ask in the comments of this podcast when I post it. I'll say, let's get a little bit of discussion going on the perfect pass on this book. And next week, okay, there's a, there's pretty short chapters in this thing. It's not that long. It is, let's look at here. It is 271 pages. Actually, this is source and methods. You don't have to go through this. Epilogue. 260-something pages. Pretty quick read, honestly. And it looks like there are 20 chapters. So let's say, let's make it pretty easy. Let's start off, let's not, let's not bite off more than we can chew on the first week here. Let's say, let's go through the first 10 chapters. So through Hal's Theory of Relativity, which would bring us to about 116 pages. Not, to, not too bad here. Again, print's not too big on this one. If you can get a copy of it somewhere, go do so. It's all over the place. Um, there's some other books that I want to talk about, like Bill Walsh's books, um, The Hitting Game of Football by Virgil Carter, but I just don't know if everyone's going to be able to get their hands on copies of those. You can definitely get your hands on a copy of The Perfect Pass. So that's, that's what I'm going to want to talk about. I want to talk about next week. Um, I'm doing enough writing about what's going on in the football that we don't need to talk about everything football-related the entire time. But Mike Leach deserved a special shout-out and a special importance this week. Um, as an innovator and just a cool dude and someone who I met very briefly at the 2019 Sloan analytics conference. And, you know, as engaging and irreverent and witty in a group of pimple faced college students and myself, a little bit older uh, person, nerds hanging around and hanging on his every word. He was just as, as great as you would think that he would be in that in that circumstance. Okay. So let's talk about some of the research that I put out this week. So uh, if, if those of you, again, if you're not with the Substack, get on the Substack train. So I've gotten some access to some data from FTN data. FTN is a fantasy site, which is now uh, breaching out into data land. Jeff Ratcliffe, formerly of PFF, doing the fantasy stuff there, is one of the founders in that area. ton of different stuff available there in the fantasy realm, and they've also moved into the data realm. They bought armchair analysis, and for old heads like myself, this is really, I'm having a lot of flashbacks using their data now because of the different nomenclature and naming of um, the different variables there and the different data points there. These are also the same ones that armchair analysis was using for some of them. That's what I used to use. It was kind of not a free public stuff like NFL Faster is that I'm using now for a lot of my stuff. 
post PFF, but it was really, really cheap. It was like the cheapest source you could get of getting a bunch of different data all together, including fantasy information, including, you know, kicking, punting, special teams, everything you can want in a relational database type of format. So they bought armchair analysis. They have also been tracking since 2021, a lot of the same data that you're getting the most important same data that you're getting from someone like PFF. So in other words, you know, interception worthy plays, um, dropped passes, broken tackles, uh, contested catches, and so on and so forth. All of that sort of charting data they have, they've been putting out their participation data, which not only tells you who's on the field at any point in time, which is actually data you can get from NFL Faster now, but also tells you what they were doing, whether they were running a route, or run blocking, or so on and so forth. So I have access to all that data now, and it's enabled me to do a couple of different analyses this week. So I have my normal wrap-ups of the, the week before with the adjusted scores on Monday for the Sunday action. I have the Monday piece about what happened on – I'm sorry, the, the Tuesday morning piece of what happened on Monday night, and then the Friday morning piece of what happened on Thursday night. But then in addition to that, I used some of this data to recreate my sacks, blame, slash – credit metric where it looks at pressure time to pressure again it's available on the ftn data ftndata.com check them out um they have time to pressure data on a play-by-play basis able to use all of that come up with a what we call survival curve so in other words it's basically plotting out to say as the timeline goes on for how long the quarterback is holding the ball what is the percentage likelihood that they will not face a pressure so they'll survive without facing a pressure, we can use that to come up with an assumption assumption for what the sack rate will be and then say, okay, well then what's what part of the sack rate goes to the offensive line? What part of the sack rate then the difference basically is attributable to the quarterback. So I used all that to kind of look at Joe Burrow for one piece because I wanted to attach it to a particular player. And Burrow has taken um, six sacks over his last five games. It doesn't sound super impressive, but he's never had a stretch in his whole entire career where he's taken fewer than 10 sacks in a five-game stretch. And normally it's much, much more than that. He's at the highest efficiency level that we've seen in his entire career, yet he was driving more efficiency when passing the ball before. It's just now he's not taking the sacks. And the sacks are just such an underplayed point. And what I think is interesting, and this is kind of part of an analytics discussion here, is sometimes... It doesn't make for the most thrilling radio. For instance, I went on a radio program with this guy, Mo Egger, who is a radio guy in for the Bengals or for Cincinnati. And we were talking about the piece and he was, and he was asking, you know, what do you think about different types of plays that Burrow may be making? What is he doing differently to get into this? Now I'm, I'm trying to think myself, you know what, man, like I'm not, I'm not getting into too much of the the hashtag film analysis sort of stuff. Not that I can't see some of it. Yeah, there's some more quick games, some other things going on. What we really want to be looking at is the broader trends, and then we say, hey, the real broad trend here is the sacks are so detrimental, and that's the part that people don't understand. The sacks are so detrimental, much much worse in aggregate than interceptions there's been about 400 more expected points lost via sack this season 
than there has from interceptions. Interception rates are way, way down over time. The value that you're getting as a quarterback throwing fewer interceptions than average is the least it's ever been because so few interceptions are thrown on average. Sacks have gone down over time, but not nearly to the same degree. It doesn't have the same psychological harm to to take a sack as it does to throw an interception because the quarterback's not on an island. When a quarterback throws an interception, even if he's getting pressured, even if receivers are not getting open, even if there's a lot of other offensive players and teammates contributing to that result, it's pinned on him. The sack, eh, some of it's on him, some of it's on others. So anyway, looking at Burrow's change here, I thought it was really, really interesting because now he's getting to this new level of passing without doing the spectacular outlier type of plays that he was doing before. And in an interview in the offseason where he talked about the sacks, and he's like, ah, they're not that big of a deal because, you know, if you take them on third down, you're going to have to punt anyway. As long as you're not getting knocked out of field goal position, you know, you try to take them when you can. Well, I mean, every quarterback is making that assessment. Every quarterback is taking sacks where they think that it's probably the best thing they can do. He's not unique in this fashion. I looked at how many sacks that Burrow takes on third down versus early downs. It's no different than anyone else. I looked at how many sacks he was taking within field goal range versus not within field goal range. No different than anybody else. Everyone is trying to do that. The only way you can really avoid the downside of sacks and taking sacks is just not to take them in the first place. That's what Patrick Mahomes does. That's what Peyton Manning did. That's what Dan Marino did. That's what Tom Brady does. Going all the way back to Joe Namath, one of the most underrated parts and aspects of his game was not taking sacks and not also fumbling the ball in the pocket. You can't have a strip sack if you don't take a sack in the first place. So all of that is part of an evolution that we're seeing for Burrow. And plus you're not getting injured too. We've seen Andrew Luck, Ben Roethlisberger, others be very, very high sack takers. And then that went down very, very low where if you have the ability to use and utilize quick game, you do that not just from an efficiency standpoint, but to prevent injuries. And let's face it, Burroughs had some big, big injuries in his career. So it would be good to also have that be part of your game plan. Of You could say, well, it's not a big deal if I take a sack on third down because it's not that important. Well, it is if you, if you get injured, you get knocked out for the rest of the season. So that was really part of my larger overall point in that piece is just how, how valuable that shift has been. And the offensive line has gotten a little bit better too. So that's important there. Um, But the real piece that's causing a stir that I put out this week was my new adjusted, I'm going to call it adjusted quarterback efficiency, AQE. I can't can't tell if that's actually a good brand here or not, but I'm going to go with it, AQE, where I'm looking at, one, the sack measure that I talked about, and then crediting back or taking away from the quarterback for how the offensive line and the blocking is is dealing with their pressures and not giving up sacks. So that's part of it, but there's a whole bunch of other things we're throwing in there. My strength of schedule adjustments against opposing pass defenses, adding that back in for an adjustment. Looking at turnover luck. Fumble luck is the easy one. So if you fumble the ball and you don't recover it yourself, because if you recover it yourself after you fumble, it's probably not the worst fumble. But if you don't recover yourself and a teammate recovers it, it's just as likely that it would have been an opposing player recovering it, but it just happened to be a teammate, which on a particular play can save four, five, six expected points, which is massive. 
So I account for fumble luck. I look at, did you fumble? Did you recover it yourself? Or did a teammate recover it? Or did an opposing player um, recover it? And I'm going to treat fumbles that a teammate recovered the same as I would treat fumbles that an opposing player recovered. So there's that. There's interceptions. Again, FTN data is tracking the interception-worthy play. So I'm going to say, okay, how many of those didn't end up interceptions? And what's interesting about interception-worthy plays, defensive backs don't know how to catch the ball. Anyone who watched the game last night saw multiple dropped interceptions. Only 35% of the interception-worthy plays actually end up being interceptions. So you take that into account. You say, you know, sometimes getting an interception is kind of unlucky versus a dropped interception. Sometimes a huge run back for like a pick six is somewhat unlucky. So I look into all the expected numbers there and make adjustments off of turnovers. Drops, another huge one. And again, drops aren't necessarily like they should have caught it 100% of the time. So I discount it a bit and I say, well, maybe these are passes they should have caught 70% of the time versus zero is how much they actually caught it. And I add that back in as part of the adjustment. Uh, Defensive pass interference. I take a little bit of subtraction off of that for the value that they've accumulated the entire time. And then lastly, what I'm going to add, and I haven't officially added it yet, though I put out a graphic and a tweet earlier today, which is kind of blown up because it shows Patrick Mahomes looking pretty good on this, is a receiver adjustment. And for that, for those of you who listened to the Seth Walder episode a while ago and the receiver adjustments that they're doing there based upon their tracking data score, that one I'm taking the, the score, which is pretty highly correlated to yards per route run, So I'm taking the score versus yards per route run, kind of modeling that a linear model. And then I'm going to say, okay, let's apply that back. Their score, their expected yards per route run. Let's look at the participation data. Let's get kind of like a mean expected yards per route run for each play based upon who's running routes. Okay, let's go ahead and graph that out and do another, you know, linear or least ordinary squares model and figure out how that applies to what the actual EPA was on the play and then apply that back again versus the the actual EPA on these plays and then say how much benefit you're getting from your receivers. I think it works pretty well, but we're going to have to test it out a bit more to see how it does. Guys like Joe Burrow, who has three top 31 receivers all in the same team. Remember, there are 32 teams in the NFL and Higgins, Boyd, and Jamar Chase are all top 31 receivers. He gets hit quite a bit because of it. Someone like Aaron Rodgers gets bumped up quite a bit because of it. That's another big adjustment that I'm putting in there. And it shows guys like Matthew Stafford in particular moving way, way, way up with poor offensive line, poor turnover luck, like way too many pick or fumble sixes than what you would expect based upon his play. Not so great receivers. Cooper Cup's been okay, but the rest of the receivers kind of trash. Um, hard strength of schedule. He's someone who ends up looking like there may be a bottom five quarterback to being more like They're close to a top 10 quarterback when you make all these adjustments. Jimmy Garoppolo, RIP Jimmy, I'm sorry. I had to do this to you. He's someone who looks like a top five quarterback who ends up getting thrown back as to being basically a middling quarterback, which is fine. Like I I think saying he's a middling quarterback is okay. Just people just want to dunk on him a little bit too much for my liking. So all that's going to come out. I'm going to put up another analysis next week, which will refine that, maybe add a bit of, what the pressure differentials are based upon how the offensive line is played. Because of course, like your average pass, even if you're not sacked under pressure is going to have a much lower expected points average than it would if you were from a clean pocket. So I'm going to make all those different types of adjustments. I may make an additional yak adjustment, even though that's part of the tracking data stuff. Um, 
which will hurt Patrick Mahomes, which will hurt Jimmy Garoppolo again, uh, which will hurt Joe Burrow, unfortunately, a little bit again, and some other guys. So I'm working through all this, but I, it's trying to say, like, let's have a framework for looking at quarterbacks. Was like we have to have a points based, comparable framework, not. I watch a bunch of tape and let me tell you my opinion, a points-based comparable framework. And let's try to strip out as much of the outside effects as possible. Come up with a number, which may not be perfect for every quarterback because it's a better number for every quarterback. And then we can continue to refine based upon that. And that's what I want to do. Refine, 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 but keep it within the broader metric of expected points added, which gives us a real defined comparable metric to use out there in the world for when we're trying to really say how much are these guys worth a real number. And it's going to be somewhat opaque what I'm doing because it's a lot of modeling in here, but at least I'm going to make sure everyone knows what those inputs are going to be in this modeling process. And like I said, it's, it's getting a lot of pickup. People seem to be interested in it. Um, if you didn't have a chance to check out and you're just seeing this for the first time, you didn't have a chance to check out my interview with Chase Stewart earlier this week, make sure you do that. Football perspective, such a smart guy, great takes. I think the Broncos, I thought it was interesting that he was a little bit higher on that than consensus. Uh, my power rankings had them at 22, which people really, really did not like. But, you know, Russell Wilson is a Hall of Famer. They do have a defense that's top five, top six is short of defense. I thought that was really interesting. They had a lot of great points there. Uh, next week, I'm going to talk to power rank. Ed Fang. Um, and then during the holidays, it's going to be a little bit weird here because after being gone from PFF, I don't have a lot of the obligations, but I'm almost spending more time than ever right now writing because I'm translating all my data and getting stuff out there on a daily basis. But I'm going to try to step back a little bit on vacation time during the holidays, maybe only publish three times a week, maybe only one pod- podcast a week. So keep an eye out uh, for that. Oh, I got saved here by Q&A here. Uh, I'll answer this one. If anything else pops up, I'll answer that too. If not, I'll peace out. And again, perfect pass. Go go get a hold of it, and we'll talk about the first 10 chapters next week. This is from Eric Vanderwater. It is, are there any estimates out there for how much coaching is contributing to EPA per play and how much of Mahomes' EPA per play would you say is down to having possibly the best coach in the NFL? Yeah, this is the toughest part, and people have talked about the scheming in it. And I was hoping that the ESPN tracking metrics were going to help me out in this in this um, regard. But really, it's trying to isolate the receiver, if anything. They're, they have a score. They have a few different ratings. They have an open rating. And again, if you heard Seth Waldron on the podcast talk about this, you may have heard it. So they have an open rating, which is how much they're open. They have a catch rating, so like contested catches, how often they're catching it or not versus what you'd expect, and they have a yak rating. So I was hoping that maybe the yak and the open rating would give some idea for scheme, but they're trying to actually isolate the receiver, so they're taking into account some of the schematic things there. It's just really, really hard to do, to figure out the scheme, because if you think it's hard to isolate a player, how do you isolate a scheme that's just like a thing? That's just a, a, an overarching mental thing over the entire game. And you can look at play action. You can look at um, you know passing the ball in early downs, maybe. You can look at these other things. But, you know, EPA, at least when it comes to the early down sort of stuff, is going to help you adjust for that. 
from what your expectations are. So it's really, really difficult. Really, really difficult. And I tend to lean towards the schematic advantages are probably a little bit less than what people think because everything gets attributed to coaching that can't be explained. There's a lot of unexplainable stuff. So I'm going to think about it more. I'm going to work on it more. Um, I am going to discount Yak. And if you look at someone like Mahomes, his there's an expected Yak number that NFL Faster calculates that I've adjusted somewhat. Yeah, Mahomes is way over his expected Yak number. So whether it's great screen scheming and things like that, maybe that's part of it. So he'll get hit a bit there. I think that's probably the best way to do it is the expected Yak number versus the actual Yak number. Like how how open are these guys getting? But some of that's going to be good receivers. So I think that I'm going to try to combine that, like how much yak they're able to generate versus what you expect. And then the ESPN tracking data for how they're able to get open independent of scheme. And those two together will hopefully work for making that type of adjustment. But, you know, spoiler alert, Patrick Mahomes is still going to be number one by a long shot. Um, Q&A, any friends in analytics have a take on who's winning the World Cup? I mean, if, if anyone's been watching here and seeing Morocco's uh, run all the way to the semifinals here, you, you can make a run in soccer, even if you're maybe not the best team. I mean, Croatia went to the finals, right, um, before. So two great teams are going to play against each other. I mean, I, so I'll tell you who I'm rooting for. How about that? Uh, I'm rooting for Argentina because I feel like Messi is – probably the best player ever. I know Benjamin Morris over at 538, who's also a football guy who writes a bunch of stuff there. He has a pretty convincing argument in that degree. And he hasn't had the World Cup success to the same degree as he's had, um, you know, team international success for Argentina on in other forums. And of course, he's had as part of his career as his professional career outside of the international play so for that reason I kind of like that it's kind of like I like I always rooted for Peyton Manning maybe to win because he wasn't you know the winner I've always rooted for Steph Curry maybe to win recently because he's someone I thought probably not now but for a while there was kind of getting undervalued versus how good he was just because they weren't coming through in the playoffs sometimes so I I think I'm gonna root I'm rooting for him to win um, another Q and a here. How do you think Lamar will come out with your modeling? You mentioned earlier, people say he doesn't need wide receivers as much with this current struggle. It seems to the contrary. Well, so here's the thing. Let's get to ESPN's ratings here for their receivers. And again, a lot of these, you're not necessarily going to agree with. So, okay, let's get to their open tracking metric. Okay. So the best receivers in the NFL, let's go ahead and sort by, team here and let's get to the the Ravens so the Ravens here it only has players who have had at least 20 targets I think so you know the Ravens got a bunch of got like the whole poo-poo platter right now of receivers that are going around the plates here so Mark Andrews is 27th in their rankings out of 119 118 players something like that of tight end of or wide receiver Devin Duvernay is 53rd Demarcus Robinson is also tied for 53rd. They're both tied here uh, for their modeling. And when I went through and I made the adjustments, let me go through the exact adjustments here for Lamar. As of now, the adjustments that I have, 
Lamar Jackson is that he gets he gets 5.4 EPA added back because of his receivers are not that good. But it helps having Mark Andrews there. And just so you know, I'm attaching this to the participation data. So it's not like saying you had Mark Andrews the entire season when he missed time. It's making an adjustment for that. Uh, the yak adjustment here, I imagine additional yak adjustment is actually zero on this play. He loses some on interceptions, but everyone does, but he more than gains that back on drops. He gains a, back, a little a bit back from the fumble adjustment. Um, he gains strength of schedule. The AFC North is actually kind of tough with uh, the Steelers and the Bengals this year, so he gains some back there. So he actually ends up getting a little bit of a bump. He goes from having 56 ex- total expected points this season up to – 77.7. So he adds 21.7 expected points. So Lamar Jackson gets a, gets a good bump. Gets a pretty good bump here. And if we look at the per play numbers here, Lamar Jackson ends up going from being, you know, right outside of the top 10 to being fifth with these adjustments. So I don't know. I mean, he had a lot of value early in the season and that, and that carries through with the high score for Mark Andrews there and why he's up higher here. But he's had some struggles later, and that's what gives him the bump the bump up without having the good receivers there. So what do you think? Lamar Jackson still getting into the top five maybe? Slightly above, uh, actually, J- uh, Josh Allen, who gets moved down. God, the guy has so many turnover-worthy throws that were interceptions. It's insane. He has like 20. Uh, according to this number from FTN data, which I think may be a little bit more severe than the PFF data. But again, I adjust for that. I adjust for the fact that only 30%, 35% of their inter- inter- interception-worthy plays actually end up being interceptions. But man, Josh Allen gets killed by that, uh, according to this analysis. So Lamar gets a bump up. So it's recognizing the fact that he does not have good receivers so far this year. All right, everybody, go ahead, check out my stuff, Substack, unexpectedpoints.substack.com. You can shoot me a note at Kevin Cole, triple underscore, the dreaded triple underscore. I finally got rid of PFF in that underscore. Otherwise, you can shoot me an email. Uh, actually, shoot an email to this pod, which is unexpectedpoints at gmail.com, and that's PTS. So unexpectedpts at gmail.com. All right, everybody, appreciate tuning in. Uh, otherwise, I'll be talking to Ed Fang next Tuesday. Uh, of the power rank he has his own analytics podcast and we will have that posted late tuesday night early wednesday morning for your enjoyment until then everyone have a great weekend have a great holiday holidays coming up still going to talk to you before that but anyway great holiday for everyone um thank you for tuning in and i'll be talking to you then thank you